Hello, and welcome to Movie Maker Interviews, the podcast where every week we talk to our greatest movie makers about the art and craft of making movies. My name is Tim Malloy, and this week we're talking about Clemency. Clemency is a death row drama from director Chinoya Chuku. It's one of the last films released in 2019, and it's one of the best films of 2019. Clemency is a death row drama unlike any other. It skips theatrics in favor of the most nuanced and honest cinematic portrayal of the process that I've ever seen. I shook throughout this movie because it reminded me of witnessing an execution in Arizona when I was a very young reporter, which is something that Chinoya Chuku and I talked about in our interview. This episode also has interviews with Alfre Woodard, who stars as the warden in the film, and Aldous Hodge, who plays an inmate who is condemned to die. Clemency opens this Friday, December 27th, and I really urge you not to miss it. Our first interview today is with Alfre Woodard, and we begin by talking about her character, Bernadine Williams. Later, we talk about her own trip to death row to research her role in Clemency. Can you tell me about Bernadine and the journey that she's on in, in this film? Bernadine Williams is our warden. She's come to it from the mental health profession. And, and I found that the, the wardens that I talked to, and we can talk about that, uh, it was either mental health or social work or public, uh, public health administrators. And so one of the things that she has always been able to count on and, and know is that she's good at her job. Yeah. She is, and the job entails keeping order. And order entails respect, calmness, balance, understanding human psychology of the incarcerated, of the condemned, of your staff that has to deal with them. It is understanding human beings and helping everything move smoothly. She doesn't make the law. The states make the law. The people that pay taxes can change the law if they want to. Yeah. But meanwhile, we put people to death ritualistically. Yeah. Supposedly in uh to for them to pay the debt of taking a life or doing something heinous. How what other situation can you imagine that you need a person like a mental health person, a person that has seen everything working social services. And so we meet her when her husband is leaning on her about them taking off, retiring together. Yeah. He's been a dedicated uh, public school teacher. He's te- we see him teaching Invisible Man. Hmm. How much stress has he been under as a public school teacher? Yeah. And... So they're both servants in that way, public servants. But he, he, he wants to dictate when she's going to leave and why. And she is feeling the weight of her job even more because she's had a botched execution. She's yeah. never had a botch one before. Yeah. And it is a grisly thing when it happens. The, the contract she's made with every <clears throat> condemned man is that I will take you all the way through this with dignity. Yeah. She made that contract with Jimenez, with his mother, 
that we see the pain that that woman is having pleading for her son at the very start of the film yeah yeah and then things go awry and when she says you know come out she pulls that curtain cuz nobody can see it not that we're hiding it but this is this is this is undignified this is not the way it's supposed to be yeah. and do we have more drugs get it to him get it to him not yeah. because he deserves to die but yeah you know he shouldn't be suffering right now so we we see her at a critical moment and then the next one up is somebody that is questionable whether he did it or not and it's not you know for her i'm sure there's been times where it was a gray area whether that person was innocent or guilty but you carry through with what what the state says has to happen wardens wait for that phone to ring just as intensely yeah as as families families of victims or families of the condemned they don't want to have to do that because every time they do it it puts a stain on their soul and every time we do it it puts a stain on our soul as a as a culture as a nation especially a nation that we call ourselves a nation of faith yeah. it doesn't matter what there's all kinds of faiths uh but that is the a common tenet of of all these spiritual approaches and even the people that don't believe they usually believe in ethics right so it's a breach for everybody she is a person who doesn't necessarily believe in the job that she's doing doesn't necessarily believe in executions i don't think we know what her personal feeling is about them but she definitely knows if i'm not doing this job someone else is going to do this job and they might not handle it with the sensitivity that i would she's in a really terrible position in a way she's trapped too you know what they're doing not just the warden but the major and everybody they are they are hoping not to do it mm-hmm. but what they have to do on a given day when the when the, the a person's number comes up is they have to put to death their coworker cuz it takes 10 years at least mm. before your appeals are exhausted. McVeigh was such a grandstander, he wanted to be taken out quickly. <laughs> But that means that's the person you're isolated on the row. Yeah. And the only people you're seeing are the ward and the major, maybe three or four guards that switch off with you and the other people on the row with you. Yeah. The prison the death row I visited with Chinoye Chuku are are really perceptive filmmaker uh had about nine people on it that's who you see every day every day and you're seeing them not in a fit of passion or anger or whatever got them to the row or whatever supposedly got them there cuz you know some people are put to death and then dna evidence exonerates them Yeah. They're not the same person. They're a person being given respect. There's a calmness around them every day and who they could have been emerges. Yeah. So you really and it's not the day after they do it. We're not in a a fit of passion. Right. We're all reasonable people. We all pray or meditate, but we turn and say, "Okay, Bill, we're going to have to kill you now." 
So that's what you're doing is you're killing someone that you all have an intimate relationship with. That is why they have a PTSD rate commiserate with people that we deploy uh, into battle multiple times. What is it like to go to death row and talk to those men? It was the most humbling uh, experience I've ever had in my life. So they put it to them who want, who, you know, these are, these two women are coming. They're coming from, you know, quote unquote Hollywood. Right. They're doing a, a film and who would like to talk to them? I don't know what the scene was like when they said that, right. but they just said, there are two, two men that have agreed to talk to you. Out of nine. And the reason we had access is because of Chinoy's commitment and history of commitment and work in the Ohio prisons. Yeah. Um, it was because the story was one that hasn't been told and it's from their point of view. It's a window into the lives of the people that we have never thought about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we want this to happen or we're allowing this to happen. I don't know, I guess it magically happens. Like, no, right. your sister is doing this. Your brother is doing this. Your cousin, your uncle. The women were like, you know, women that would be in my book club or, you know, in my social club and you know you hang out with them at the gym yeah and but that's who we're char charging to carry this out and so they appreciated the fact not only did she get it right but they they gave her notes every they were all they were all invested in it yeah so that's how we had access and they, they could trust us with the story and those men that the two men that we spent time with we were already in maximum security prison so we had come through like four levels of uh of um security coming in and locking and locking and locking by the time we got to the row then they took us to a, two more places of lockdown into a basketball court. Hmm. There was a little bench where we're closer than you and I are now. Our knees were practically touching these guys' knees. Wow. And we sat and talked to them and two people are there, you know. With guns. It was, we were so far we were so far into the bowels of this moment. First of all, you just have to kiss yourself up to God. Yeah. Because anything could happen. But you got to go where people live to be able to tell their story. And, you know, we didn't say, I, I never said, how does it feel to be, you know, what do we just, you know, we start talking the way you visit. Yeah. Just saying, you know, you know, hi, who you are, and where are you from, and all of that. And they start to talk, and you just listen. Yeah. And... In talking, they were the most, I mean, I can't tell you how uh, unafraid, un, you know, how, uh, not a, how, I don't even know a word for not being menacing, but they were almost, they were almost docile in a way. I'm sure there's a lot of, 
you know, again, you have time to think. That's right. all you got is time. Right. And you you reflect on what you've done. Uh, both those men uh, accepted responsibility of what had happened. But, it, you know, but they were uh, what they had been involved in. But also, as you talk, you saw the damaged boy in them. Hmm. You know, you remember that boy in your class when it just started with, you know, go to the, you know, go, go to the principal. <laughs> you, you knew when they couldn't read up to standard in the third grade, so they cut up in class maybe. And you know when they drop out. And also I work with kids in elementary school all the way through high school around the country in schools that are failing. We turn them around with a program called Turnaround Arts. So I recognized them. One was in his late 30s, one was late 40s. But you know what they talked about? Mainly the thing that I remember most is they were both concerned about family. And it was about daughters. Daughters who were in their late teens and one was just over 20. And they talked as any father would, you know, saying, I, you know, I'm concerned that my daughter is making, not making good choices in men, not men that would kick their ass or get them in trouble, but, you know, a good man loves my daughter right now and she, she, she doesn't want to accept it or commit. And he, that's what he wanted for his daughter, but he says, it's my fault. I wasn't, I wasn't there. So she doesn't know how to recognize love in a man. And so just the same way we talk about our kids, you know. So again, that was the most humbling place I've ever been is when a person knew they had a limited time and they they decided to, to spend some of it with me. There is my responsibility. That's when you're called to tell the truth. It's easy to do your work when you come back after meeting everybody because it's not even about you making acting choices. You are witnessing, you are absorbing your, you know, smells, rhythms, everything. And I, you know, I I couldn't stop spontaneously weeping for a month after that. Mm. And I realized that, because I, you know, I live a joyous life and a good life, a lot of love and support. And I would just weep suddenly for about two minutes, and I, nothing was on my mind. And but I knew I was I was cleansing. I was cleansing, and I did do a, you know, a, a physical health cleanse after that because I knew I had to wash my spirit clean. Mm. And uh, but I realized that I was crying other people's tears, and I was having to let go of other people's constriction because I could cry. I could laugh. I could get angry. I could throw something. But you can't do that if you're incarcerated. And you can't do that if you're the incarcerator. That was Alfred Woodard. And now, the director of clemency, Chinoya Chuku. Congratulations on this movie. Thank you. It's 
devastating and it really sneaks up on you. Uh, the first thing I wanted to ask is, you came at this from a very passionate place. You had a lot of emotion around the death of Troy Davis, an inmate who was killed in 2011, I believe. Yes. And there were a lot of questions about his guilt and you were really kind of haunted by it. There were a lot of questions about his, his guilt and innocence. Um, but even beyond that, there were a lot of, it reignited questions about regardless of innocence or guilt, do we as a society have the right to kill? And so it galvanized hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people around the world protested against it, including a handful of wardens. And I was really, really um, impacted by that. One thing I thought was so interesting about this movie is though it came from such a passionate place, it's a very logical story. Mm-hmm. It's not one of those movies that starts arguing as soon as it starts. It's really just a portrait that allows you to get to know these people and empathize with everyone involved, including the warden, mm-hmm. unexpectedly. And then it just kind of takes you through. It's kind of a journey where if you just pay attention to these facts, there's really no other logical conclusion that you can reach than the death penalty is wrong. Can you talk about how you crafted that story? Yeah, well, my... I've always known that the protagonist was going to be the warden. And I was very clear about what her emotional arc would be. And that this is someone who is actively suppressing and containing her emotions um, so she could survive and get through the day. And I think that Anthony is doing the same thing. And so I really thought about how can I tell a narrative where these two characters progressively become more and more connected in terms of their arc um, and and so it started from there. And I knew, you know, early versions, um, there were a lot more, there was a lot more of Anthony's backstory, a lot more people from his life involved, a lot more of Marty. And I was like, no, that's not what this is about. Like, I don't need to justify his humanity right. by bringing up all this other stuff from his past, right? right? And so I really tasked myself to craft a narrative where we don't really know whether or not this person's innocent or guilty and we don't know much about his his past we are just staying with him in the present and uh it was a really it it was hard at times um because i think i I wanted to fall into certain tropes narratively but i it was a real i really pushed myself to to scale back um and so yeah yeah there's typically a moment where we find the smoking gun that proves that he's not guilty or something like that and then we have kind of an emotional breakthrough as an audience. But what you do instead is just say, you know what, whether he's guilty or innocent, no one, no matter what he's done, really, no one should go through the experience of knowing you are condemned to die at this time and you have no control over your fate. It's, it's just more powerful that way. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I'm really, I, I was, I di- I'm clear about my own personal politics about yeah. the death penalty, right? Uh, but I, I, challenged myself to write a narrative that was not inundated by my own personal politics, that was not preaching to the choir, that was not telling people how to think or feel. And so I'm really, really um, so happy that so many people are coming out of watching this film still feeling something and thinking something on their own because you can't help but see and appreciate these people's humanities. Yeah. One thing you did that I thought was really, really interesting is you kind of negate one of the biggest arguments against the death penalty, which is how it's applied in such a racist way, frequently. Mm-hmm. And by making the protagonist an African-American woman and the condemned man an African-American man, you kind of take out the idea of, well, this is just like a bad racist person who wants to kill him because 
he's a bad racist person. It sort of takes the racial aspect out of it altogether. Right, and like this, the, the system is racist, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it yeah. disproportionately affects black and brown people and poor people. Um, but I didn't want, I wanted people to, re- this is a story about this, the system at work and the humanities at stake. And I, and I thought that if the warden is white and the person on death row is black, then the racial dynamics become the narrative and not an interrogation of the prison space and the practice of capital punishment and the system of incarceration. Um, And so I just, and, and so, yeah, I really wanted to complicate it and live in the gray. Yeah. What are some of the techniques that you used as a filmmaker to bring across the message that you wanted to get across? Like, are there any things that you did where you went, this is kind of a good because it doesn't feel like a manipulative movie at all, That's which is good. one thing that I really like about it. Because a lot of movies about political issues, I agree with them, and it makes me resent the movie. Where mm. it's like they'll, it's like I was already convinced when I came mm-hmm. in that the death penalty was wrong. I didn't need like a two-hour lecture confirming what I already yeah. know. What are some of the things that you did to avoid that and to sort of? I, I did a couple things. Um, one, I kept the music minimal. Mm. And I really used the, I used sound design to capture the industrial starkness of the space. So what I, the horror of this space is the mundaneness yeah. and the emotional um, detachment of the space. And the way to create that is by really scaling back on the music, letting the performances be at the foreground. And there's nothing more haunting in the opening scene than the heartbeat monitor. Yeah. Like no music can do that, it can yeah. create that kind of tension. Um, and it just makes it that much more visceral and real. Um, I also was intentional about certain framing and compositional strategies, you know, using a lot of negative space to emphasize isolation, um, using anamorphic lenses inside this tiny, tiny, tiny cell so we can, it can, we can, it, we would be able to get as close as possible to Anthony um, amid this really tight space. Um, and, you know, using cyclical camera movement when he's in, when he's in his rec time to capture the cyclicalness of, of the space. And then we tilt up to the cage and we see that he's still entrapped, in, in, in you know. Um, I, my cinematographer, Eric Bronco, who is phenomenal, we were really intentional about the camera movement the framing and composition being an extension of the rigidity of the world and the emotional detachment. So most of the film is locked off or um, on a Steadicam. Um, and we only have a few scenes that are handheld. Um, and we were intentional about that. Um, and so those are some of the things that we that I did. And also just the long takes as well to yeah. really capture to really capture emotional moments in real time and let 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 the three and a half four minute close up do its work yeah. instead of a monologue you know how you know I'm, I'm not even going to get into that close up because it's so pivotal and such an amazing moment I just want people to see it yes. but let's just acknowledge that it's there and that it's spectacular thank you It's. Um, I actually saw an execution as a member of the media when I worked for Associated Press really yeah about 20 years ago Really early. What was that like? Well, what I wanted to mention is you got the antiseptic quality of it exactly right. Exactly right. Because the thing that still haunts me is like the way that the place, the prison smelled good. Mm. Um, mm. They, 
they obviously had put these prisoners to work and the lawns were beautifully trimmed. It was kind of a beautiful space. Mm. And it it made it more cruel. Yes. I mean, I mean, the thing that always shocked me the first couple times I entered a prison was how boring it was. Yeah. I mean, it was just mundane, you know, from my visitor, privileged visitor perspective. And, and there, I've been to some prisons that look kind of like high schools, yeah. you know, and considering what goes on in those spaces... I mean, that's the horror right there. That's the sentimentality, you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the antiseptic quality because that was intentional. Yeah. It's strange, I mean, because obviously we don't want these to be, if it was horrible conditions, we'd be angry that it was horrible conditions. But there's also something very strange about it being so hospital-like that feels like it doesn't acknowledge the horror of what's happening there. Yep. It, and Agreed. I, I, I don't have a, here's how they should improve prisons. Like, I'm not... I don't have a way to solve it, but it just, it was upsetting in that it was very, it, I don't know if disingenuous is the word, mm. but it was, and I guess you felt the same way. Yeah, I mean, it just, it's, it just felt so clinical and detached, you know, and like I remember when, um, after writing the scene where Bernadine is going through the protocol of, of how a- Anthony's execution will go, I wrote that a little differently where she would use language like when when you die, the da 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 happens. And I had um, a corrections official, former warden, read it, and she marked it all up. And she said, we don't talk like that. It's not personal. Yeah. So it's not when you die. It's when the procedure is complete. You know, and, and she marked up that whole passage. Um, and that, oh, that was haunting yeah. to me. Like, that was, I was like, so this is how, this is, this is part of the this this is the the kind of systematic dehumanization yeah. that is happening, um, and so yeah, I I will never forget that moment. Yeah, it opens with an execution. Um, I don't want to say anything else about mm-hmm. what happens in the movie because I don't want to ruin it for people. But there's something that you do in this movie with the breathing of the the condemned man, which is the main thing that stays with me about the execution that I saw. Is I think when the first drug goes in that's to put people to sleep, mm-hmm. he went into a very heavy breathing, and it was, and this isn't to make fun of him or belittle him in any way, but it's just, this is how it sounded. It was like when the Three Stooges take a nap, and they do that really exaggerated mm-hmm. breathing. Um, how did you, how did you get that? How did you know that that was, do, does everybody talk about that? Or I didn't know if that was unique to the execution that I saw, or if that's common. No, I, um, so I talked to a couple medical professionals about what happens to the body, during when things go wrong like that and I read a lot of case studies and that scene was inspired by a couple different executions I'd read about um and and Alex Castillo who played the man who was condemned um so well he was he did a lot of research on his own to figure out what happens to the body physically and and he brought that into his performance I really do Part of me feels like everybody should see an execution just so they really understand what they're arguing about. Like when we talk about capital punishment, mm-hmm. obviously we, out of respect for the people who are being killed, we don't actually want to do that. But I feel like seeing your movie would help people to really get a good picture of what this is, what this really is. I hope I hope that people see it because I, I think a lot of people are not proximate 
to prisons and to people who are incarcerated and let alone to capital punishment. I mean, most people don't know what this is. I mean, I knew nothing when yeah. I started writing this. And so um, I think that that will really, yeah, it could ch- it'll change a lot of people's minds or at least make them reconsider. Yeah. Can we talk about your personal journey? Mm-hmm. You've had an amazing life. I mean, <laughs> your parents are petroleum executives? Petroleum engineers. Engineers. Okay. Yeah. So they're they're in Nigeria. They're, they yeah they moved back to Nigeria. But I grew up in the states. Okay, but you're born with, in Nigeria. With my parents, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you moved to Alaska. Yeah, we moved to Oklahoma for a couple of years, and oh, wow. then when I was six years old, we moved to Fairbanks, Alaska. Wow. And how long did you live there? <laughs> Till I was eighteen. And that's the basis of your movie. Alaska Land. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a while. When I said, like, living it, I didn't really think much about it, right? Because yeah. it's like my norm. But it was when I went to college and and was, like, the only Alaskan, lonely Nigerian, you know, um, there. I was like, oh, this is actually an anomaly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Got it. <laughs> when you meet from someone in L.A. from Nigeria, you're like, oh, cool. And when you meet somebody from Alaska, you're like, oh, cool. But you don't put the two together. <laughs> no, you sure don't. I mean, Nigerians are everywhere. We're everywhere. But I, I, I will say I think I'm one of the few Nigerian Alaskans that a lot of people I know have met. <laughs> yeah. Did, it, did being kind of an outsider give you more of a sense of empathy and make you more of an observer? Um, it... it 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 definitely gave me more empathy in that I, I had a lot of struggles growing up. You know, I struggled with depression, severe depression, and, and it was really hard for me to navigate the complexities of my identity, um, and the darkness in Fairbanks did not help at all. Um, and so I was, I was in really, like, emotionally dark spaces that has made me really aware of the gray areas in life. Yeah. And... It's made me empathize with other people who are also navigating those kinds of complexities. And so that's why I think I connect the most with Anthony's character, I think, you know, as he's navigating his own loneliness and isolation and place in the world and wanting to be seen and um, those kinds of human feelings I'm very sensitive to. Should we talk about the Golden Globes? They kind of messed up again. I mean, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> it's, it's pretty remarkable that they didn't choose any female filmmakers um, in the directing category. What do you think? You, you've talked about how they there need to be some systemic changes. What do you think those changes are? I mean, how do you just kind of shake people out of their, I don't know if it's comfort zones or if it's a matter of blind spots or if it's... I mean, there needs to be different people in positions of power. I think that we need to value women of color, di- women directors, definitely but that women of color directors and women of color, um, women of color as decision makers. You know, I think that the people um, in those with the most privilege in those positions of power need to use their privileges to actively be allies to women particularly women of color like actively do that and give up some of their space um in fact give up all their space if they can (laughs) uh, because they'll be fine (laughs) um yeah and and i mean and changes in 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 widen the access for films that can get made and, and films that can get made with real money and widen the access about films that get distributed and and widen our possibilities um, on what kinds of stories are valuable and worthy of being recognized. Yeah. And, and we all should support the films that don't get supported by these, by these structures and entities, right? Because if 
it, there are so many amazing films that don't get that recognition, but they still need the support. They still need people to watch their films in theaters and, and, and to support them. Yeah. When you say give up all their space, I mean, like, I'm a white male who is one of those. I'm in that group of people mm-hmm. who, you know, have traditionally, I don't run the world, but have traditionally run the world. And I feel like when they hear give up all of your space, there's a tendency to freak out and say, oh, what about me? But isn't that just sharing? I mean, isn't that just... It is, because, I mean, giving up your space in a moment or for an instant, like, it, it doesn't take away from the lifelong of, ac- of access and privileges that you have yeah. um, that many other people do not have. Yeah. And so, you'll be fine. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of these you'll things that... <laughs> A lot of these things that scare people just seem to be very basic, share, be nice to people, like treat others as you would want to be treated. It doesn't... And empathize. I mean, just imagine, just imagine if not one single white man was nominated for, (laughs) for not, if one single man in general, but especially a white man was not nominated for like half the categories. (laughs) You'd be in an uproar. (laughs) You would be in an uproar. But of course, that's not going to happen. And so... Uh, it's hard to imagine that, but it's like, I think that we have to do a better job at empathizing as well. And be will, if we really want to be a part of the change though, we have to be willing to use our privileges and access for those who aren't as privileged. And it, and sometimes it is sacrifice, but that's what we have to do sometimes in order to move forward. Yeah. And cinema helps so much with empathy. Absolutely. It's, it's so important. Absolutely. And I think directing is empathy. I think directing is empathy. I think that you know my job is part of my job as a director is to bring out the subtext, and the subtext is the humanity that exists between words and underneath words. That was Chinoya Chuku, director of Clemency. And if you have not yet seen Clemency, this is the end of the podcast for you. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, please check out MovieMaker.com. You can subscribe to MovieMaker Magazine. We would love to have you visit the site or subscribe to the magazine. We really appreciate you listening to this. If you have seen Clemency and you're okay with talking about some plot points or us talking about some plot points, then our next guest is the wonderful Aldous Hodge. And we are absolutely going to talk about some plot points. So please know that you are warned or whatever ominous thing I should say. You are forewarned. Plot points about Clemency are about to follow in this interview with Aldous Hodge. We start off talking about the fact that almost everyone in Clemency is a sympathetic character, and why that is. Speaking to your point earlier, yeah, everybody uh, is is quite sympathetic, and I think that's the point of it, is that it doesn't matter whether he did it or not. That's because uh, Chenoya didn't want to force or impose upon the audience a direct agenda, right? She wanted to ask an audience a question. How do you feel about this now that you see the truth of it? And whether he did it or not doesn't matter. It's not about him committing a crime. It's about us as a society feeling justified to commit a crime. That we shroud in the identity of, you know, true justice. But that's what I love about the film, man, because... That's what gets people thinking. (laughs) Yeah.
one amazing thing you did as an actor, you made me think about something I don't like to think about, mm. and none of us like to think about, which is the fact that I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I felt the way that you were condemned on screen, mm -hmm. I felt that same sense of, what if I knew that I was going to die in 48 hours, 72 hours? Yeah, man. And that feels like almost the real cruelty and what's really cruel and unusual about the death penalty. It isn't yeah. just the death, it's knowing you are condemned, you will die at this time in this way. Yep. Did I you? I can't imagine. <laughs> I guess I had to imagine, but I, to, to actually go through that, I can't imagine what it really is like. Plus, at this point, he had been, you know, been in jail. We, we meet Anthony uh, when he's been in jail. He's been on death row for 15 years at this point. So within those 15 years, you're constantly there. He's constantly thinking, all right, today could be the day. You never know. So that must be a mental prison in itself, aside from the physical prison, but it just has to be torturous. And going through this, I don't know what that's like, and the character, to a degree, didn't know what it was like, um, especially in the scene where Alfred's telling him about how he's going to die uh, if this does happen, and I wanted to experience it with the character, because how do you prepare for someone telling you, alright, so this is what it is, you know, and in real life, um, brothers on death row, brothers and sisters on death row, they get a choice. Yeah. When I went to San Quentin to go visit, the warden uh, showed us the death chamber and um, told us that they get a choice. The the inmates get a choice for how they want to die. And he asked us, "Well, what do you think they choose more, this or this? You know, uh, mm. gas or the uh, needle?" We said, "We don't know." He yeah. said, "The answer is they don't usually choose. They just you know because how do you choose how they're gonna die? Like how? You know what I'm saying? Yeah." Um, but it, it does get you to thinking every moment is precious. It reminds you to just take advantage of your idea of whatever freedoms you have, take advantage. Yeah. You know, because we don't know how long we have them. There's the incredible moment and the incredibly painful moment where your character, Anthony, just wants to take his destiny into his own hands. Yes. And tries to kill himself in the worst, <laughs> the worst way possible. You're right. How did you get into the mindset to do that? Oh, man, I was so excited about that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Not what I thought you'd say. I know. Um, one time I actually misjudged my uh, depth, and I, I actually hit that wall for real. <laughs> you, you banged, for people listening who haven't seen it, you bang your head into the wall yeah. many, many times. Many times, yeah, man. It's For me, I was excited because uh, I get really ambitious about showing the audience a completely new reality and, and seeing how they react and every time I've seen this film with an audience every time that scene comes up um, they go ooh you know there's a you, you can hear it in the audience it's a resounding oh ooh <laughs> you know and I love it because we're showing people the truth of what this is uh, quite a few people take their own lives uh, when it comes to death row because they're tired of waiting they, they want to own them you know for, for the for the character it was his way of owning his own destiny, going out with dignity on his own terms. And I felt proud that he got to have that moment, but it also being able to step back from the acting side of it and looking at it as an artist presenting something to the audience, I was so excited to show them this to see how they would feel about it. That's why for me, the uglier it got, the crazier it got, you know, uh, the happier I got. <laughs> uh, 
Because it means you're connecting. Absolutely. And I just want people to feel something. And the fact that people have felt something is, is really amazing. I, uh, I used to be a regular reporter before I did this. Mm-hmm. And one thing I did really early on was witness an execution in Arizona. Oh, wow. And you did something that I've never seen on camera before. I don't know if people don't know about this or why I've never seen it before, but the mm-hmm. person who I saw executed, once they get, I think it's the second dose, the one that puts them to sleep, mm-hmm. they start, at least in my experience, in my limited experience, breathing very heavily. And it's almost like the way cartoon characters breathe as a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It's like this really very breathy breathing. Wow. And you did that. Oh, wow. Did you know to do that or was that just going with the feeling? No, I was just going with the feeling because um, I did not realize that at all. Um, I've never witnessed uh, an execution. Um, so, I, you know, I know certain people have different reactions, but it was just trying to imagine what that actually is going to be, like how your body is going to react to this foreign uh, substance that's literally shutting it down, you know. Um, I know how bodies react when they, uh, sometimes when people die there, it's like a little kickback, <laughs> you know, yeah. after, after the, 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 the heart may stop, the brain may still be, um, active mm-hmm. sometimes. And, you know, there's, there's some nerves that may still be active. So I figure your body's going into this crazy shock and I just figured, you know, we played at it a, a couple of times, but we tried to figure out how that might come across if his body actually is now being paralyzed down to a st- standstill. Wow. You've done a lot of these socially conscious movies and you've always tried to make a statement, I mean, including on City on a Hill. Right. Why have you chosen to go this direction instead of like, I mean, the Marvel Universe must be calling you, right? I mean, they must be. <laughs> They're not calling. <laughs> not yet, I guess. Um, so I would love to do, uh, I would love to, to balance my career with uh, the, you know, commercial action films. I love those. I'm a fan. I go to see them, and I think they're really fun, and I like that element. I, you know, I really do want to jump into the action world because I've been uh, a martial artist since I was six. Um, I'm not competing these days, but I still stay in practice when I can. So I love that and uh, it would be nice for for that opportunity to cross my desk one of these days um but with the films that i've chosen i choose them because it represents what my purpose is and also my reality i am still a black man i am not removed from the effects that we are experiencing as culture in this country and if i'm going to do work and push art out there i want art to be a part of the progressive conversation to help enhance and improve our environment as we walk around every single day call to light what the problems are so you know not every project i do is going to be consciously uh, aware in these areas but I think there's a nice balance to strike between doing films that do have this sense of awareness and then doing a you know, commercial film, having a little, little, little fun, being able to breathe and relax. But even there, you can push in a little bit of conscious awareness in a different way. And there's a way to execute it where it can still be fun and, and show people that um, you know, our lives matter, we matter, we are important, and, and, and we are not to be ignored in, in the ways that we have been up to this point. But... Um, I choose things that speak to me because I still have to walk around every day and, you know, being a part of my business doesn't mean that I can escape the actual reality of the world we truly live in, especially in this country. Yeah. Yeah. 
being 32, you're kind of at a good point career-wise where you you are a veteran of this industry for, is it 20 years? Uh, actually, um, so I, I actually just turned 33. Oh, like last month. I'm fresh in it. Happy yeah. birthday. Uh, thank you. Um, I've been in the business uh, 31 years now. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm old, old in it. Um, <laughs> How has it know, changed? Uh, it's weird because I've seen the, the, the changes um, – uh, back in the day, it was very different. You know, uh, reality TV came in and shook things up. Then social media shook things up, and then streaming came and changed uh, content distribution. And uh, you know, content has has evolved in many ways. So I've seen the way the art has been affected uh, in some good ways and some not so good ways. But I'm just trying to stay current and alive in it. And, and thankfully, luckily, I've been able to maintain. Uh, working and and doing the kind of work I choose to do and the kind of work I'm proud of. Um, still, you know, thinking I'm I'm trying to put myself in a position to really make some serious moves uh, in terms of affecting how the reality and the scope of opportunity changes, not just for myself but for other people. And so far, the work that I've been able to get is speaking towards that goal. So hopefully, I just accomplish that sooner than later. But uh, you know, I feel like I'm in a great position professionally. At the same time, I also feel like I'm old, bruh. And, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for the enhancement or the evolution of what my experience is in this entertainment industry. And I'm, I'm just constantly shooting for that, that growth. You're wearing a beautiful watch. I think that's a watch of your own design. Is that no, one of yours? No, it's not. I wish, man. I wish. It's coming. It's coming. This is a watch. Uh, this is an Arnold & Son Golden Wheel that was designed by an associate of mine, Sebastian Chaumonté. Um, the watches I wear uh, at this point are the watches that I've been inspired by. Either I know the watchmaker or I've learned from the watchmaker's achievements. But I've been in development now for a couple of years. Um, and I'm designing three different watches at the time, a chronometer, a jump hours movement, and then a retrograde movement. And, um, you know, the jump hours is taking priority. I'm still working on that actively. Uh, I'll show you. But uh, it's going to take some time. And it's, it's a labor of love, man. It's difficult. Um, it takes a lot of money. I'm trying to raise funding for that. But... Also takes a lot of time, perseverance. Like after I leave Georgia, I head to Geneva and oh, <laughs> go wow. meet some. Yeah, yeah, I'm deep in it, man. I'm a horologist, true and true. Uh, uh, but I love it because it gives me a different sense of purpose and um, ambition for life and art. Why do watches speak to you? Why timepieces? Um. So the the idea of timepieces came from my love of architecture at first i was going to go to school for architecture but it, it, as a kid i just wanted to be an engineer at all you know because people would always i grew up in jersey new york and not such the greatest part of jersey and people oh you're gonna grow up and be a rapper and be a basketball player and i'm like there's nothing wrong with that but why is the potential of what i could be beholden to your lack of cultural knowledge based on my color mm -hmm. you know uh what about a scientist what about a doctor why do you not naturally assume intellect and intelligence via the association of my skin that bothered me. So I chose to be an engineer of some kind, any kind, as a bit of a protest to the idea, you know, because black people are naturally inherently inclined uh, to, to education and academia. It's what we've produced, it's what we've contributed, but it bothered me that people didn't recognize it. So it was first architecture. Architecture pushed into watchmaking because I could take it with me 
as I pursued my to continue my career in acting. But watchmaking encompasses architecture and engineering and art mm-hmm. all together under the same roof, and it satisfied so many of my ambitions. Has it made you more conscious of time? <laughs> so my theory on time is that it is absolutely non-existent. It is, to a degree, a theory, mm-hmm. a theory we, which we've conceived uh, to measure our own lives. But the relativity of time is not tangibly something that's real. So it's our it's a construct of ours. Uh, to a degree, uh, Einstein even says that time is a theory, because time has different properties and is calculated differently when it comes to moving out in space. If you get out to the universe, if you're on a different planet on Mars, you know, I'm 33 now on Mars, I would be about, I'd be about 16 years old. Right. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's crazy. You know, kind of, you know, according to the lunar year. So it's my ambition for, for time telling is about measuring the experience of time. I want to give people that I want to give them my vision of how to engage time telling. Yeah. The last thing, Mm. Have you learned things as a movie maker that you would like to pass on to others? Things that maybe the average person sure. doesn't know? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, the thing that I've learned the most is uh, the the imprint that we leave, you know. Uh, I want, I know people are always going to consciously learn or even subconsciously learn from what you've done and what you've accomplished. And I want to make sure that what I've accomplished teaches somebody to elevate their game and to improve upon the 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 situations that they're in and how can we create a more cohesive environment where everybody can win because look there's a seat at the table for every single person but the door is locked where a few people can't get in yeah and we have to figure out how to break through that door so for me the awareness of how we affect people um the effectiveness of our art something to be be uh, conscious of and, and and how we distribute what we do that has all informed the choices I make. And I just want people to know that whatever they do, they have to walk in their truth and their purpose. You know, whenever they, they put out their art, make sure that it's something you can go to sleep at night easy and, and be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, I did okay. Yeah. That's all I got. Thank you so much. Thank you.